direct your attention to this morning are found once again in the book of 1 Timothy. And today we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy, verses 8 through 11. First Timothy 1, I should say. First Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me once again as we examine this passage. Lord, as we come to your word, we come because we want insight, we want understanding, we want to learn how rightly to handle the word and how rightly to interpret it. And so again, we ask for your grace to give us insight and understanding that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you might be aware of that uh, one of the greatest scandals of the 19th century was something called the Dreyfus Affair. Alfred Dreyfus was a Jewish artillery captain in the French army, and he was falsely convicted by a military court for uh, spreading military secrets to the Germans. And in a public ceremony in Paris following his conviction, There were crowds that lined uh, outside the courthouse and jeered at him. He had his insignia torn from his uniform. He had his uh, sword broken in front of him. And he was paraded through, through this crowd that shouted at him, Death to Judas! Death to the Jew! And it turns out, again, he was falsely convicted. He had done... Nothing of the sort. He was actually a very upright and faithful soldier. And he was eventually exonerated uh, by a court later on in his life. But actually, even the French army didn't actually admit their injustice until 1995. And similarly, this is often, I think, how Christians treat the Old Testament law. As a traitor and a fiend rather than as a faithful friend and helper. And like Dreyfus, I think the law has been given an unjustly bad rap. And I think some of this comes from really some statements even made by Paul and a misunderstanding of what Paul was trying to communicate. Statements such as in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And you add to this what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, that uh, through the 
uh, he calls the law sin and death. The spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And these, these statements seem to give the impression that the law is a bad thing, that it's an enemy of people. But really, this is, this is rooted in misunderstanding and a failure to rightly understand and interpret the law. And really, misunderstanding the law is something that has characterized Christianity from its earliest history. In fact, it was a misunderstanding and misapplication of the law that Paul tells Timothy to address to the church in Ephesus. This was the root of the false teaching that was so prevalent in the church that Paul sends Timothy to correct. And in fact, this is the first thing he addresses in this letter, that Timothy needs to deal with these false teachers. And we saw in uh, verse 7 that what they were doing is thinking that they were experts in the law. They, have, they desire to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand uh, even what they were saying or the things that they made confident assertions in. Uh, in particular, they were misusing genealogies and ap- applying them wrongfully, we see in verse 7. And so then in verses 8 through 11, which we'll look at today, Paul gets specific at what these false teachers are doing wrong. But before we look at these verses, I think it's helpful to see where Paul goes on from there. Because in verses 12 through 16, Paul not only explains this misunderstanding of the law, but he actually goes on to show that he himself once misunderstood the law. And he actually gives himself as an example of such false teaching and rebellion. He also once abused the law, albeit unknowingly. And he gives himself as an example because he wants the false teachers to see it's not only that, that God has been gracious to him, but he wants them to know that even God will be gracious to them if they too will repent. But for these teachers to be restored, they first of all need to understand what they've done wrong. And so Paul highlights four points uh, in these verses before us. First of all, the law is good. The law needs to be interpreted rightly. That the law is primarily intended for lawless people. And that also the law is in complete accord with the gospel. Let's look at the first point in your outlines. The law is good. The word law here refers to the Old Testament law. And notice that he calls it good. That, w- that word good, the Greek word kalos, it speaks to its intrinsic goodness. It's purity, that, that it's, it's meant to be helpful. And I think we can't move, uh, spend uh, too short a time on this because I think this is often what people misunderstand about the law. They think of it as a bad thing rather than as an intrinsically good thing. And frequently it's, it's often even pitted in contrast to the gospel. The law condemns and uh, is an enemy. And yet the gospel brings hope and it's good news. It's a friend. But the law, rightly understood, was never intended to be a curse. The law was always intended to be a blessing to Israel. And that's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 97 says, oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. He's not just referring to all of Scripture, though I'm sure he feels the same way about the rest of Scripture. He means the law. He means the commandments and the ordinances and the statutes. That's what he brings up again and again throughout this psalm. This psalm that's dedicated to his delight in the law. In particular, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, those first five books of the Pentateuch. And these ordinances that are given there. He says in verse 127, therefore, I love your commandments above gold. More than fine gold. Think about that. More than all the greatest treasure, he would rather have the law. And he goes on to say in verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I mean, you can just see his heart. This is. He's bursting with joy and delight like uh, like a young man as he sees his bride walk down the aisle. It is his joy. So God didn't give the law to be a burden, but a blessing. In fact, let's look at some of these purpose statements given in the law as to why, uh, what the purpose of the law was. Why was it given? Uh, Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And let's see what what Moses says was the reason for the law. Deuteronomy chapter six. He begins. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. And your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. Now he gets to the purpose part that your days may be long. Hear therefore Israel and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Then he goes on in verse 23 and 25. When the children ask about the commandments, tell them. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord. Why? For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. So what Moses is indicating is the law was given to bless Israel, to be a friend, to give them guidance so that they might thrive. So that God's presence might dwell with them and bless them richly that that that, as that's conveyed in the ironic blessing uh, of God's face shining upon them and being gracious to them. If they follow the law carefully, they will dwell in God's glorious presence and thrive. That's what the law was intended to do. God gave the law to his people so they might dwell in his presence and in dwelling in his presence, know him and love him and experience his blessings. And that's why Paul says in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So it begs this question, how does this goodness of the law then line up with what appears to be Paul's negative statements about the law? Why in the New Testament does there seem to be a negative view if if the law was such a good thing? Well, I think that the reason... Many people fail to recognize the goodness of the law is because it's frequently misinterpreted and misapplied. And that, of course, was the case in Ephesus. And that is what Paul addresses next in the second point. 
The law needs to be interpreted rightly. In order to understand the goodness of the law and to see how it fits perfectly in accordance with the gospel, the law needs to be interpreted rightly. As he says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If you don't use it lawfully, it's going to be seen as a bad thing. There are rules for rightly interpreting the law. We saw again in verse 7 that the teachers in Ephesus were not interpreting the law accurately. And there are two primary mistakes that they're making. First of all, instead of, they were not interpreting the law according to its natural meaning. They weren't even using, interpreting the law in its Old Testament context rightly. They were trying to use the law as a, to, as a tool uh, to determine whether one was right with God or not. In particular, it, it appears that they were using genealogies. And if somebody was descendant to, descended from one of those people that were listed in the Old Testament, then you're good. If, you're, if your ancestors in one of these lengthy genealogies, then you're, you're saved. You're spiritually right with God. If you're not, we'll pray for you or something. They were misinterpreting the genealogies. The genealogies were never intended as a, a list of people whose descendants are saved. That was never their intention. What was the intention of the genealogies then? It was a record of God's faithfulness. If you, if you examine those genealogies, the point isn't to give a list of those whose descendants are saved. It doesn't, that's not even implied. But what they are is a record of how God has preserved his people and brought about fulfillment of his promises, in some cases to bless. And in the book of Numbers, it's actually to demonstrate that they were experiencing his cursing as these numbers dwindled for their disobedience. So these false teachers were not even interpreting the law under its natural meaning in the old covenant. So they would have been false teachers even under the old covenant. But secondly, they're not interpreting it in light of the work of Christ in the new covenant. That's the second thing they're getting wrong. See, because of Christ and his death on the cross, he fulfilled the law. And therefore, these legal requirements are no longer binding. As Paul says in Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but now under grace. Romans 7.4, he says, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. And then two verses later in Romans 7.6, he says, we are released from the law, having died to that which once held us captive so that we might serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Because Christ has died and fulfilled the requirements for the law for us, we don't need to. His righteousness is imputed to us when we trust in him. And these passages suggest, therefore, that the, that the law is no longer necessary for Christians to follow. So these false teachers were not interpreting the right, law rightly, even under the old covenant, and they're certainly not interpreting it rightly under the new covenant in light of Christ. So this brings up a massive question that I think has confused many people in the church from the very beginning. How do Christians interpret the law and apply it if Christ has fulfilled it already? What benefit is the law to us today? 
Well, it's of great benefit. In fact, I love to preach from the law. One of my favorite sermon series was the book of Leviticus. There is lots of richness. Um, but we still need to interpret it rightly, right? Lawfully, as Paul says here. Now, under the Old Covenant, it was pretty obvious, pretty straightforward how the law was to be interpreted. Obey the commands. God says, do this, do it. And in fact, in often in, the, uh, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus, God will list some commands and then it will say, and Israel did exactly according to their commands and good things would happen. But under the new covenant, how should we handle the law? Well, I want to give just three simple principles for interpreting the law in its New Testament context. And um, well, let's just begin. I'll, I'll give the first one. The first is determine what the law meant to its original readers. Right. You can't understand the meaning of the law in a New Testament context if you don't understand it in its original context. You have to rightly understand it according to its original recipients. Okay, so you first need to understand what it meant originally. Secondly, discern where the what theological and moral principles are inherent in each law. Or what does this law say about God? What's it revealing about God's character? What's it revealing about God? What's it revealing about sin? And the reason this is important is because God is always God and his character never changes. So if a command is given in light of God's character, that's that the, what it's revealing is still true because God hasn't changed, even if some requirements are no longer necessary or what it says about sin. Sin is always sin. Sin is always contrary to God. And so if something was sinful inherently in the Old Testament, it's still sinful today. Now, that may not apply. Like some, there may be some commands like don't eat certain kinds of shellfish. But and if somebody would have broken that command, they would have been sinning, but not because selfish are sinful, but because just God said, don't eat that. But he, he gave that law, not because there's something wrong with shellfish, but because he wanted to separate his people from the uh, nations around them. There was a different the, the principle there is not shellfish are wrong, but you need to be a holy people. So you need to get the right theological and moral principle that is being developed by a particular law. Thirdly, third principle, based upon the above, consider how the law might be applied in a contemporary setting. And you're thinking, really? Just those are the three principles? That's not rocket science, Joseph. That's true. It's not rocket scientists. I'm not rocket science, but I have, uh, I believe even rocket scientists would say these are the three primary principles for interpreting the word rightly. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? You got a nod. Okay, that's good enough. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm singling you out. Man. Right? It is rather simple. And that's, my, that's actually what I want to draw out. These are not complicated things. This is what you would naturally expect. Um, it, what's its original meaning? What are some of the theological principles? And then consider how would those principles apply today? And the, and, the, and the law is rich. I'll give an example of this. First Timothy 5.18. In this very book, Paul quotes a law to present the principle for 
paying pastors for their labors. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And he's applying it to in a New Testament context. He makes the same point, actually, in first Corinthians nine, when he explains the principle further. I'll just read it to you. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is it for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If you have sown spiritual things among you, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul is just taking a principle, an Old Testament law, and saying, this is bringing up a principle that we need to care for those who labor, provide for them, and then bring in New Testament context, right? Rightly interpret it. It's about oxen in the Old Covenant, but it primarily reveals a principle that can also be applied in the New Covenant. That's how you rightly handle the law. But these false teachers in Ephesus were misinterpreting the law and misapplying it because they didn't even understand it to begin with. It was not given to make people righteous, but rather to show the unrighteous how to live righteously. And this is the, the fundamental understanding that Paul addresses next, that the law is for the unrighteous. Point three in your outline. Look at verse nine. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So his point here is, is to emphasize the law was never intended to make a person righteous, but rather to show unrighteous people how to live righteously. So why does then Paul give this long list of sins, real graphic sins? Some people uh, believe what Paul is doing is he's actually calling out the behavior of the false teachers, that this is what characterizes them. I don't think that's probably the case because um, he will go on to highlight his own life of sin, um, how God graciously led him to repentance. That's one reason. Also, uh, these false teachers don't seem to be libertines, but rather more of a legalistic variety. If you look at uh, chapter four, verses one through four. So it doesn't seem to be that this is what the false teachers were actually doing, um, but rather probably what they thought themselves above that they weren't even close to committing these sorts of sins because they followed the law so rigidly rigidly sorry so paul wants them though to understand that that if the law is given for such people as these then even false teachers too can be saved the law was not given for those who um, follow law perfectly but for those who fail to follow the law, it's not like a, a gift for the good guys, like a merit badge or a gold star to wear on their uniform. But it was given as like a, a map to bad guys to help them out of their mis- misery. And, and notice how the, the, the sins that he lists 
more or less follow the Ten Commandments. It, it, what Paul is doing is he's taking the Ten Commandments and, and kind of highlighting worst case scenario of failing to obey these commandments. He says the, the first six sins that, that have to do with the failure to follow the first four commandments. And then the next seven with the last five commandments. Let's look at, first of all, the, the lawless. It refers to those who have no laws. Instead, they're, they're governed by selfish instinct. They just do what they want to do. Who cares when anybody says, I'm going to do my own thing. They're a law to themselves. The rebellious refers to those who even who do have a law, but they just flat out refuse to follow it. I'm going to do my thing regardless of what anybody else says. The ungodly refers to those who reject all manner of religion. They're godless. Sinful are those who lives are defined by sin. People think of them, they think that's a sinful person. The unholy, the opposite of holy, the profane, somebody who's absolutely godless, don't mind defiling anything. All right, so these are the first six sins. He goes on then to point out that the law was given um, beyond that, even for those who not only fail to honor their father and mother, but for those who kill their father and mother. It was not given just for those who commit adultery or to tell them not to commit adultery. It was actually given for homosexuals and those whose lives are defined by their sexual immorality, like prostitutes and pimps. It was given for them. Instead of not stealing, he says the law was given for those who steal people, enslavers, kidnappers. In contrast to the law Thou shalt not bear false witness. He says the law was given to liars and perjurers. Those who are defined by being false witnesses. And just to make it clear for us moderns, a quick aside. Paul clarifies that even though the law uh, is given for such of these, it does not condone any of these behaviors. Right? He says everything else that is contrary to sound doctrine right so for those who want to continue to champion in the church the lgbtq movement it is sinful it is wrong as well as all of these other sins that are mentioned everything else that is contrary to sound doctrine so he's not legitimizing such behavior lying and cheating and killing parents but he's saying that the law was given for such people it wasn't given for the righteous people who honor their parents. It was given for those who kill their parents. It was given for homosexuals. It was never intended to be a means of making one righteous. As Paul describes it in Galatians 3, he, he says it's a tutor, like a, a teacher, a guide. In verse, chapter 3, verse 24 in Galatians, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. So that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So if these false teachers would have been interpreting the law rightly, more and more people would have been coming to Christ, seeing their need for Christ. They wouldn't be trying to make themselves righteous by law keeping. Illustrated this way. 
Imagine an army medic is, is deployed to a battlefield and, and, he, and he gets this shiny, brand new uh, first aid kit that he can use to help wounded soldiers. And he's so proud of it. And he gets to the battlefield and there are people dying all around him, but he, he doesn't want to open his kit because he doesn't want his NCO, his sergeant, to find out that, you know, things have gotten disheveled or these missing pieces. He just wants to keep it nice and clean and neat. And he's walking through the battlefield, ignoring those crying out for help. And then he eventually gets shot also. And he starts bleeding profusely, but he fails to open his kit. And a few hours later, an enemy soldier who was also shot is crawling back to his front lines. And he finds the body of the medic. And he finds attached to his medic is this great first aid kit. And he takes out the gauze and he bandages up his wounds. And he's able to stop the bleeding and get himself back to his front lines and to a hospital where a great physician is there to, to put him back together. The law was given not as a thing to take pride in, but rather as a means to getting us to the great physician, to point to our need. And that's why the law is in accord with the gospel. This is point four. Verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. That word accord means it works together with the law isn't against the gospel. The two work together. All right. So imagine a, a uh, an EMT, a paramedic to use. Keep going with that medical analogy. The paramedic. When he sees a, a person who's traumatically wounded, he examines them and, and maybe announces this this guy needs a hospital. We need to get him to the hospital and he brings him to the hospital and while he's in the hospital. The ER doc is the one who fixes him up. The doc does the surgery. The two are not contrary to one another. They work together. The doc needs the medic and the medic needs the doc. And, and, and just to make the point further, nobody wakes up in the ICU after nearly dying and getting patched up and says, gosh, darn it, I really appreciate that doctor for saving my life. But that paramedic, I'm so angry at him because he said I was going to die. He said I needed to go to the hospital. That, that par- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to get that guy fired. No, you realize this is a good thing. This is a blessing. It was there to help me. It's good and righteous. You, you, you appreciate the paramedic and you also appreciate the physician. Because it's the physician who ultimately saved. In the book of Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it clear that the message of the gospel is that people are made righteous not by law-keeping, but through faith in Christ. In fact, let's turn there. Turn to Romans 1. We're not going to read the whole book of Romans, I promise. But look at chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Then if you look over a couple more chapters in Romans 320 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And I, I point this out to, to, to show you that the law could never be a means of making one righteous. It, it just couldn't. It, it, was, it was weak. It what, didn't have that ability. And to fully understand this, we have to go all the way back to creation from the very beginning and real, remember, why was it that God created us? What was the original intent of our creation? It was that we would glorify God and enjoy Him together. Forever. Together forever. I guess that works. I added to the Westminster Catechism there. But it's that, it's that we would truly worship Him, that we would love Him with all our heart and mind and strength. That was what we were created to do, and in doing so, we find great joy and glory. But when man sinned, he ruined it. Sin into the world, bringing death and destruction, and it pervaded us. So that instead of loving God with all our heart, what did we love with all our heart? Ourselves. That's right. And we lived for ourselves, and we exalted ourselves, and we wanted people to worship us, or at least other creatures, rather than God. In fact, Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God's design was ruined through sin. And so then God gave the law as a gift for such people whose lives were ruined by sin so that they might know how they can live rightly. Instead of following their selfish cravings and instincts, they could have some sort of guidance on how to live a life rightly before a holy God. And if they would have done so, he would have dwelt in their presence and they would have enjoyed his blessings. But the problem with sin was so pervasive that even if a person tried to follow the whole law, they would fail. Because again... Think of the, what are the first what's the first commandment of the law? Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Who does that? Nobody does that. So they can't because in, because of sin, and the Lord knew this. So He points this out, and He calls them to such a command. But then He says this in Deuteronomy chapter ten. You can flip there if you like. God, the, the law gave guidance as to how to live righteously, but it couldn't solve the core problem. And it says this in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you? Now that you have the law, what's he want from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And to keep the commandment and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, then be no longer stubborn. Think about it. How does one circumcise their heart? This is the point. You can't. We can't change our hearts, but that's what needs to be changed. We need to be changed from lovers of self to lovers of God. The problem is we need new hearts. Well, how do we get that? The Lord tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. 
And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. God's point is, if you want to fully live out the law, you got to have a new heart. You need to be transformed. You need to be changed. There's no amount of law keeping that you can do to fix yourself because the problem is so pervasive. You need a heart change. You need to be born again, to use Jesus' words. The law gave guidance so that we might know how to live before God and live a life pleasing to God, but it couldn't solve this core problem of sin. But the gospel teaches us that Christ died to save us from our sin. And He died so that we might have our hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, through the Holy Spirit's power and through His leading, we would now live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And that's why Paul says we're no longer under a tutor. We don't need the law to tell us how to live because we got the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in us guiding us into how to live out His Word. So let's, let's see this in Romans 8. He brings up the same point in Romans 8. We love, of course, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But notice where he goes from here. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life replaces the need for the law. The spirit leads us. The spirit guides us. As Paul says in Galatians two nineteen through 20, through the law, I died to the law so I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? The Spirit enables us to fulfill the law in a way that we could never do just in our flesh. Right? It, the Spirit enables us to keep the Sermon on the Mount, which would have been impossible outside of His transforming of our heart. As Paul says in one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.14, You hear me quote a lot for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ and we're willing to let good and kindred go and do anything he tells us to do because we love him more than we even love ourselves. So to emphasize the point again, God did not give the law to save righteous people. In fact, God did not come to save righteous people. He came to save those who realize their desperate need for him. Remember that that in Luke chapter 5, after Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector to come and follow him. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Paul also says in Romans 5, 6, For while we are still weak, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Because we must all stand before the judgment of God, but only those whose righteousness is perfect will escape that judgment. We need to be made righteous. We need new hearts. We need to be saved. And Christ is the only way to receive new hearts and to receive perfect righteousness. He is the way, the only way, and the truth and the life. And so I conclude with this. If you recognize that you are ungodly, and you recognize that you also need perfect righteousness to escape God's wrath and to have His favor. And thirdly, you recognize that you need your heart changed, that you don't love God like you should, that you, that you love sin like you shouldn't. And then fourthly, you recognize that in Christ alone can perfect righteousness be attained and a heart, a new heart attained. If you believe those four things, then you can be saved. And I say that to those of you who are saved and sometimes doubt your salvation. If you want to know if you're saved or not, do you believe these four things? Do you believe that you are a great sinner and that Christ is a perfect Savior? If you do, welcome to the family of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you did not come to save the righteous because, as we know, there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who can boast. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all brought upon ourselves shame and we deserve open shame. We deserve punishment. And yet, God, instead of giving us what we deserve, you gave us Christ at the cost of the shedding of His blood. You allowed Your Son to be crucified for Your enemies. And Lord, we recognize that we are not loved by You because we are good, but we're loved because Christ was good. And Father, I pray that You would deepen our awareness of the richness of the grace that we've received so that we would be ambassadors of grace to those who are also caught up in sin and who need, who need help. We pray that You would bring salvation to unbelievers through the witness of the members of this church. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.